Good morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It's good to be home uh, the month of October. You might have noticed I was uh, traveling a little bit more than normal as just speaking in other churches as God opened the door. And so last weekend we were able to go to Arkansas and spend a few days down there and share with their church. And any opportunity I have to go and share um, really the miracle story that is Living Hope Columbus, I take advantage of that. You're going to hear us often say if you stick around this church that we're living in the middle of a miracle. And we don't just say that, I truly believe that. And I know many of you do as well. And so um, our Arkansas friends, if any of them are listening today, I say this unashamedly. That's the most boring state I've ever been to. I asked them on Friday night, I said, where should I go on Saturday? Me and Liz got to go, my wife. And um, they said, oh, you need to go to like this mountain. It's the most beautiful thing in the entire world. I hate mountains. So I said, but I said, okay. So I drove an hour and like 15 minutes to this mountain, drove another 30 minutes to the top, got out of my car. I was like, okay. I <laughs> got in the car and left. It was the worst. Like it was terrible. But uh, they thought it was wonderful, and, and we're thankful for them after we left. I um, was able to share what God's done here and Finding Hope Center behind us, and uh, they wrote a, a pretty significant check to us uh, for the Finding Hope Center to invest back into what God is doing here, and so that's just wonderful. But it's good to be home. This is always my favorite place to share God's Word from, um, and so I'm glad to be here. So 1 Corinthians 13, we're continuing our ghost story series today. Got, got to extend it a couple weeks um, to deal with some topics that I think are important. So if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, one of our values at Living Hope is that we're for the gospel. And so we love the Word of God and want to honor that. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read three verses, starting in verse 8. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says this, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word. Father, for the time we have to be in your word together today. And Jesus, we invite your spirit to be among us, Father. Uh, God, to teach us, to grow us, to mold us into the image of Jesus today. So God, give us the ears we need to hear from you. God, give us hearts to receive your word, hands and feet, Lord, to live this out as we walk with Jesus the rest of the week. We love you. It's the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in most cases, we typically at, at Living Hope Columbus, we plan our teaching calendar. So what we're going to share on Sunday mornings, at least two to three, sometimes four months in advance. I'm a very type A personality, and so I like to have a plan as to where we were going. And so as we were planning out this ghost story series a couple months back, and I was calendaring this out, knew what we were going to talk about, you know, Holy Spirit in conversion and being filled with the Spirit and all that good stuff. But I knew this year that we had to deal with this idea of spiritual gifts. And not so much spiritual gifts as it deals with generosity and discernment and those kind of things, but the supernatural spiritual gifts. So things like tongues, prophecy, and healing. Things that in a Baptist church, Baptists start squirming a little bit. If you didn't know, we're Baptist church. So we always say we're undercover Baptists, but we're Baptists, okay? But I knew we were going to have to teach on those things this year because we've never covered those here at Living Hope Columbus in our two and a half year history. So being a good leader, I decided, you know what? Joe's going to teach on those things. <laughs> and so I planned the calendar. I knew I was going to be out of town. I knew this would be a controversial subject in nature. And so good leadership says, just don't talk about it then. You let Joe do it because he's the associate pastor. And uh, so he said, okay, yeah, I'd be glad to tackle that. And so he started studying for that topic. And then last Thursday, so the Thursday before he spoke last Sunday, I get a phone call. I think it was in the evening and it was Joe. 
He says, hey, man, I've been studying this all week, and there's just way too much to cover in one Sunday. He said, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give a general overview of the topic of tongues and prophecy. He said, then you can come back the next week and actually tell him if it exists or not. And he's like, I got to go. Bye. <laughs> he's on the phone. Oh, that dog. The student became the teacher. So I get to talk about tongues and prophecy this week. But as I began to study this, really what we're going to do today is we're going to cover one this week and one next week. So this ghost story series is going to be a little longer than we anticipated, but I think it's important, and I think this is helpful for us today as well. And you're going to notice, too, if you were here last Sunday or you tuned in online or listened to the podcast, there's going to be a little bit of overlap here as well, okay? So everybody just chill out. I know we all come from different backgrounds, different theological places from where we grew up, what we've experienced. Just calm down. We're going to all get through this together. And here's what I want, to, I want us to, to do as well. Um, don't place your experience over the scriptures this morning, okay? We have a tendency, and I do this too, where experience outweighs the truth of the Bible, Stop it, all right? Let's not do that today. Let's approach the scriptures with an open mind. And I was thinking about this last night too. We're gonna go off script here for a second. Um, I grew up conservative Southern Baptist home. Some of you are here today visiting with us. Like I, we grew up in the same church together. So I, I grew up in those kind of environments where if you even like mentioned the supernatural spiritual gifts, it was like, ah, heresy, you're a witch. You know, that kind of a thing. Okay, relax. Some of you, you grew up in an environment where these were probably practiced very regularly. And this is something that maybe you are highly familiar with. And you're thinking, ah, oh, Baptist preacher's going to talk about him. He's a witch. Relax, all right? Chill out. Because we need to approach the scriptures together today. We want to see what does God's word say. And just so you know, too, I haven't always just been a Baptist. I actually was in for a short period of time. I was actually in more of a Pentecostal church for a little bit because of friendship groups that I was a part of. So I've been around people that have spoken in tongues. I, I understand this, okay? So I've got a little bit of a experience in both worlds, all right? But everybody, chill out. If you're easily offended, you can go ahead and leave. The exit's that way. But I promise we're going to be okay together, all right? So clear the deck. All we're asking today is what does the Bible say about the gift of tongues, all right? So let's define our terms real quick. If you're a note taker, get your pen ready, get your phone open, however you like to do that if that's what you do. Tongues, here's a quick definition for us. This is a working definition that will help us this morning. It's a supernatural speech given to believers in Jesus when they speak in an unknown language to the glory of God. That's what tongues is. Let me say that one more time. It's a supernatural speech given to believers where they speak in an unknown language to give glory to God. And there's basically three, three theological camps that most Christians could fall into when it comes to the, the supernatural gifts, especially tongues. There's one that's called cessationists. That's a big word. You're going to forget that before we leave today. That's okay. Cessationists would believe theologically that tongues have completely ceased. There's no more tongues. There's no more healing. There's no more prophecy. When the 12 apostles had all passed away, John being the last one, those supernatural gifts were done. God no longer uses them. They are gone. Those people are boring, okay? That's, that, that's like your grandpa's church. You've got to wear a suit and tie every Sunday, sing only hymns, and you, you get my picture. Right? That's cessationist. Then there's the charismatics. We're getting a little bit more fun here theologically. Char charismatics, they think that tongues and prophecy, they still exist, but they're only reserved for a specific few that the Holy Spirit gifts with inside the church. 
So they would say that those, these things are still functioning, they're still active, but not everybody engages in the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. Then there's the third group. These is the group of the, they're called the Pentecostals. You've probably heard of these folks. Let me, let me say this. If a Pentecostal invites you to a party, you need to go, okay? Pentecostals, theologically, they're the most fun of all because Pentecostals, they believe that tongues, that prophecy, they are around and every Christian needs to heavily engage with them. If you're a Baptist and you visit a Pentecostal church, you're going to be uncomfortable because, man, they are what they call free in the spirit. These people just get after it. Here's, here's my only rub with Pentecostals. There's a few rubs here, but this is a significant one. They would tell you that if you don't speak in tongues, that you're not even saved. That the evidence of your salvation is actually your ability to speak in these unknown languages. So, with three theological camps present, now we have to ask the big question, who's right? And are these gifts actually in existence and are they in function within the local church today? So, turn with me real quick to the book of Mark. Flip back a few few books in your Bible. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today, so, so stick with me here. It's interesting to me because tongues is only actually mentioned five times in the entire Bible. Five different places. All right, Five different places. But the first one is in the book of Mark. Mark 16, verse 17. It'll be on our screen as well. Here's what God's word says. It says, And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. So this is Jesus speaking. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. There's our word. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will get well. Now, that's a church service I want to go to. There's a lot going on in this passage. Picking up snakes, drinking poison, speaking in different languages. Like This is, this is like a West Virginia in the hills church service going on. Like This is some crazy stuff, okay? Again, same page. If somebody invites you to this church, you're busy, all right? You come to my house. you got plans that night. This is wild. So what's going on here? Well, first, what's significant here is you got to understand, Joe and I were talking about this this morning. It wasn't uncommon for God, when he was first birthing the church, to use the supernatural to confirm the salvation message. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that. But there's a little bit more going on here that I think is significant as well. Remember this, this thought when you're studying the Bible. Scripture always complements Scripture. So if you see something in Scripture that seems off or kind of strange, you need to go to the other Scriptures to understand it better. Here's what's interesting. We don't see anywhere else in the Bible people drinking poison or picking up snakes outside of Mark chapter 16, verse 17. The only other place I could think of was when Paul, uh, after he got shipwrecked, you remember he picked up that snake, and what did it do to him? It bit him, because that's what snakes do. You don't pick up snakes, you don't mess with that, that's goofy. So what's going on here in Mark chapter 16? Well, look in your, in your Bible or on your phone, however you have it there. You're going to notice something interesting. Verses 9 through verse 20 are probably in brackets. And if you actually do a little bit of study, this section of Scripture, those 11 verses, were actually not found in the original manuscript of the book of Mark. It's believed, actually, that later on, as scribes were copying these various letters in Gospels throughout church history, that who was ever copying the book of Mark kind of felt like Mark just kind of like abruptly ended his book. Look, look at that again, Mark chapter 16. Let me turn there in my Bible. Mark chapter 16. Watch this. Look, look at how Mark ends his gospel. So Jesus has, has resurrected, resurrected morning comes. Then in verse 8, it says, So they, ran, they, they went out and they ran from the tomb because they were trembling, and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The end. 
Mark's just like, yeah, that's what happened, so let's move on. And that was pretty common throughout his gospel is he had like all these very abrupt endings to these stories. Why? Because Mark loved to leave you in a sense of wonder and astonishment. That was his goal. And so it's believed that what happened is as these scribes were copying Mark, they get to the end of this gospel. The other three gospels kind of leave you to this nice little conclusion, but Mark really doesn't. So it's believed that they kind of took the summation of the story of Mark and they said, you know, we need to fill this out a little bit. And it seems like they got a little bit carried away in what they actually said there. So the original manuscripts, that would not have been present in them. Therefore, I don't think it's a good spot for us to really build this proof text on should we believe in tongues or speak in tongues as Bible-believing Christians. Now, do we cut this part of our Bible out? I don't know. We just interpret it in light of the other scriptures, and we don't see this stuff occurring anywhere else in the Bible. That probably confused the tar out of you. Come see me. We can talk about it a little bit more. Let's go to the next part, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here's the next part where we see tongues. So we're just going to go in order real quick and see what's going on here. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So Jesus has ascended. The early church is about to be born. And it says on the day of Pentecost in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost was a Jewish celebration that occurred 50 days after Passover where Jews from all over the known world, they would gather in Jerusalem for this big celebration. Look at verse 2. So suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. So you have the 12 apostles, the Bible says, 108 other people. Acts chapter 1 says there's 120 people present and they're praying for this promised spirit that Jesus had told them about. Remember this too, this is a pivotal moment in redemptive history because up to this point, the Holy Spirit would only come upon upon certain people at certain times for certain events. Right now, the Holy Spirit's gonna come on multiple people very permanently. So this is a pretty significant moment in the life of the church. Look at verse three. So that this wind comes, fills this whole house. Then they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. What was that? It was God. It was the presence of the Spirit. It was not uncommon for God to show up in fire. Think of Moses. What did he encounter? A burning bush. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he was going against the prophets of Baal. When that altar was consumed, how did God consume it? Through fire. Think of the Israelites traveling by night. What did they follow? A pillar of fire. So this was not uncommon for God to reveal himself in such a way. Yet this time, look at what it says in verse 3. Tongues like flames of fire that what? Separated. See the personal nature of God taking place? It wasn't just the Spirit on one individual for a moment. It was the Spirit separating across multiple people. So look at verse 4 with me. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Filled with the Spirit, speaking in different tongues as the Spirit enables them. Now, a couple things I want us to see here, because we're going to build a theology of tongues this morning. Watch this. First off, notice, this was a gift from the Spirit. Okay? That's important. Here's the second thing. It wasn't learned, it was given. That is so significant in today's modern movements when it comes to Pentecostalism and Charismatics and tongues. This was given, it was not learned. You know, you can log on, don't do, please don't do this. I probably shouldn't tell you this. You can log on YouTube and learn how to speak in tongues, okay? That's, that's not a gift of the Spirit. That means a YouTuber just made $10 off of you to teach you something, you know? That's not what's going on here. This was given, it wasn't learned. Here's the last one. Joe talked about this. It was a known language 
Okay, are we all on the same page there? It was a known language. They say, well, why does my Bible say tongues? Because that's translation tradition. And oftentimes we take that word tongues and we associate it with these, sometimes people do these ecstatic utterances. Sometimes they just say various uh, syllables over and over and over and just try to roll these letters together. Um, Just these weird, I would say odd manifestations, if we could call them that, in the name of tongues. Some people even tell you that they're speaking in an angelic language. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The Greek word here, and I'm not a Greek scholar, okay, but I have programs that are. Tongues simply means languages. Are we on the same page there? This is so important. I don't know why, but for some reason when we say so-and-so spoke in tongues, we're like, ooh, that's spooky. That's mystical. You know? We say, oh, they spoke in German. Oh, that's cool. Oh, they, they spoke in Chinese. Oh, that's cool. For some reason, the words tongues has this like odd like association with it that we, we just need to get over. You could actually go in your Bible right now, cross out the word tongues and write the word languages, and that would probably make you feel better as you're reading the scriptures. It means the same thing. Look at verses 5 and 6. Watch what happens. So these guys start speaking in languages, and now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had come all over for Pentecost, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together, and they were confused. Why? Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Do we see that? Verses 11 through 15, you see 15 different nations that are represented there. All of these Jews coming together in Jerusalem to worship, to celebrate after Passover. They come there and they hear these apostles speaking in 15 different languages. Why is that so significant? Watch this. Two things. This is so important. Tongues, number one, was a sign of God's judgment. You see, God had originally planned on the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to be his megaphone to the world. Read throughout the Old Testament. Guess what happened? They didn't do it. So God made a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that he was going to speak through people of different tongues so that they would no longer understand. God said, I tried to use the Jewish people, but now I will use the whole earth to get my glory known. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. God was taking the gospel message beyond the Jews to all people. You know, to be part of God's family, previous Acts 2, you had to become Jewish. That was the rule. Now anybody is invited into the family of God. The gospel was broader than just the Jewish people. That is so important. Um, We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Here, here, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I want to show you another instance of tongues. we got Acts 2, Mark 16, Acts chapter 10. And if you're wondering, we don't typically do messages that are are much like this. Typically, I get a little bit rowdy and we go crazy. But this is so important, and we need to talk about this. So Acts chapter 10, Peter, one of the first apostles, one of the 12, he has a vision from God of this large tablecloth coming down from heaven. And the Bible says that it was covered with all of these animals that were considered unclean to the Jewish people. Let me put that in context for you. That means there was bacon on this tablecloth, okay? That means there was shrimp, That means there was crab cakes. That means there was bacon and gravy, probably. All right? I mean, a lot of stuff going on here. I actually wrote in my notes, if you want to, I'm not lying. I actually wrote, this is the moment bacon was introduced as as okay in the diet of a Christian. And all God's people said, amen. (laughs) It's right there. I'm not making that up. It's right there. It's right there. So Acts chapter 10 says that three times this sheet is falling down from heaven. What's going on here? Because you read that and you're like, what? What's going on, Peter, man? You just want to have a Baconator? What you doing? But no, what's God doing? He's showing Peter 
that the gospel, again, is bigger than the Jews. That's the whole point of this story. That God's people were now no longer just the Jewish people, but redemption was available to everyone. So Peter has this vision. Then God sends him to Cornelius' home. Cornelius was not a Jew, but he was curious about the gospel. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, watch what happens. While Peter was still speaking these words, so he's sharing the gospel with these Gentile, non-Jewish people. This was radical for Peter. This was important for Peter because Peter was a Jewish leader. It says, The Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message, and the circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were what? They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. For they heard those Gentiles speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, and declaring the greatness of God. So these folks get saved. They begin to speak in other languages, praising God. For what purpose? To show the Jewish people that God's message is going beyond them, but was now available to the entire world. Just like we saw in Acts 2. Just like we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me give you one more, Acts 19. Similar event. Paul gets to Ephesus, meets with a group of disciples of John the Baptist who was now dead. He was beheaded. You might know that story. Paul shares the gospel with them. They end up getting saved. They hadn't heard about the baptism of Jesus. What happens? Acts 19, verses 6 and 7. It says these Jewish men began speaking in other languages and to prophesy. There was 12 of them in all. Again, a sign to who? To the Jewish people that God's redemption had come beyond the Jews, but now was available to all people. So we got the book of Marks three times in the book of Acts, and there's only one more place in the entire New Testament where tongues is mentioned. Acts chapter 12, verse, or, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14. That's the only other place we find it in the Bible. Here's why this is so important. We're going to do a little bit of history lesson here. 1 Corinthians was written between 53 and 56 AD, all right? So about 25, 26, 27 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. That's pretty important there. So based on what we know from the book of Acts so far, here's, here's all we know about tongues before we get to 1 Corinthians. Spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit, that's important, after conversion. Um, it's always a known language, that's important. Um, it's given to some but not all, that's important. Because remember what we said about the, the Pentecostals? They think that if you don't have tongues that you're not saved. The Bible says that's not true, that's not the way that this works. Think about this. You know in the book of Acts that we have approximately 30 different records of people getting saved, but only three of them mention people speaking in tongues? That's pretty significant to me. 30 records of people getting saved, but only three times in the book of Acts do we see people speaking in tongues. I think that's important. All right? And then lastly, from the book of Acts, we know that tongues was given to show the Jewish people that God's family was expanding beyond them. Now, a little bit of like trivia, important history stuff regarding tongues here uh, in, in, the book, in the New Testament. First off, the only two New Testament books that mention tongues, we're going to take Mark out because we said that was a little bit goofy, is the book of Acts in the book of 1 Corinthians. Two authors, Paul and Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Think about this. In the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, he only talks about tongues three times. Right? We said that just a second ago. 1,006 verses in the book of Acts. You know how many talk about tongues? 24. We could actually pare that down to probably about 15 if we take away some of the history surrounding those events. 
Out of over a thousand verses, only 24 of them talk about tongues in Luke's writing. Think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. There's 27 different books that we have recorded in our New Testament. Of those 27 books, 13 of those were written by the Apostle Paul. That's pretty significant. Of those 13 books, Paul only mentions tongues in one of those books, three chapters, the book of 1 Corinthians. That's pretty important. Paul, guys, think about this. Paul wrote 84 chapters of the New Testament. Right? Next to Luke, he was the largest author of our New Testament books. Of those 84 chapters where Paul was communicating God's truth to God's people, to various churches all over the place, he only talks about tongues in three out of 84 of those chapters. That's pretty significant, and I think we need to know that. After Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote several other books. 2 Corinthians. Oh, really? He wrote 2 Corinthians. <laughs> He wrote all these other books. He wrote 1 and 2 Timothy. He wrote Titus. All these other books. And he never mentioned tongues again, ever. He never even told the Corinthians about it again. The only place he told them about it was in 1 Corinthians. He never talks about it in 2 Corinthians or any other book that he wrote. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Aaron, why does that matter? Find me one other topic that Paul did that with. Find me one other topic that he didn't allow to span multiple letters that he wrote to these churches. All right, think about this too, and I wrote some of this down. Of those, those uh, uh, 12 New Testament books that Paul didn't write, I'm sorry, 14 New Testament books, there was six other authors present. So you got Matthew, Peter, James, John, and Jude, and then whoever authored Hebrews. I think it's Paul, but we're not going to get into that today. All right, so you got all these other authors in the New Testament. You know none of them, not one ever mentions tongues. They never talked about it in any of their letters. Paul is the only New Testament author to mention it. You say, why does that matter? Here's why that matters. Because you know who was present in Acts chapter 2? Peter, who wrote books of the New Testament. John, who wrote books of the New Testament. Matthew, who wrote books of the New Testament. All three of those guys were there in Acts chapter 2 when tongues happened and they would have spoken in them. You could even argue that Jude, half-brother of Jesus, was probably there. And James, half-brother of Jesus, was probably there in Acts chapter 2 as well. Yet, in their letters, they never talk about it. Think about, goodness, think about this too. Peter was present in Acts chapter 10 when tongues went into the Gentiles when the gospel was expanding. Peter, in his letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, he never talks about tongues. It doesn't happen. Even if we were to take Mark chapter 16, which was written by Mark under the help of Peter, it's the only time that it's ever even maybe mentioned is the end of Mark 16. You never see it anywhere else in the book. Guys, why is that important? Because I think, I think maybe that there's Christian movements that are making mountains out of molehills with this theology. That maybe, just maybe, we're developing entire church systems and theologies around something that the Bible doesn't place a ton of emphasis on. Let me give you a contrast. Philippians 2, we talked about humility for like six weeks, just from like four verses in Philippians chapter 2. Do you, this is crazy to me. Do you know of the nine New Testament authors that we see six of them talked about humility? It was that important. Do you know of the 14, 14 of the 27 New Testament books talk about humility very specifically? Not just generally, specifically using the word humility. Do you see the difference Tongues is so few used in the New Testament, but a contrast like the word humility is so important throughout the New Testament books. All right, I'm about to get excited. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I promise we're almost done. 1 Corinthians 12. 
So Joe gave a great overview of this last week, but I'm going to fix what he messed up. So I'm just kidding. I'm joking. He did awesome. I listened to the sermon, read his notes. He did wonderful. But I want to, get, I want to make a couple statements to make sure, if you weren't here, they were on the same page. First, largely as a whole, understand the book of 1 Corinthians as corrective. Okay? Paul is correcting this church. It's not prescriptive and it's not descriptive, meaning he's not saying, you need to do this, or this is how you do this. Paul's saying, if you must, here's how you do it. It's very corrective in nature. The assumption is based on earlier parts of the letter that the Corinthians actually wrote Paul a letter and say, this is going on in our church. It doesn't seem right. Things seem a little bit messed up. Can you help us? Think of it this way, corrective versus uh, descriptive and prescriptive. If my mom's watching, I'm so sorry, I probably shouldn't tell this story. When I grew up, my mom made a very, very clear uh, statement to me. She said, Aaron, if you ever want to start smoking or you ever want to start drinking, we will 100% support your decision. I swear I had good parents, okay? I said, what? They said, here's the only caveat to you doing those things. If you decide you want to go smoking, we're going to set up a time on an evening where your dad and I will actually go to the store, we'll buy a carton for you. Then we're all going to sit on the back porch together, and you're going to smoke through the entire carton with all of us sitting there. What? She said, if you're going to do it, here's the rules by which you have to play. Same thing with drinking. She said, if you want to start drinking alcohol, the rule is your dad and I are going to go pick up the 24-pack. We're going to buy it for you. We're going to sit on the back porch. You're going to drink the entire thing from start to finish in one evening with us present. Now, was that my mom and dad going, we hope you do this? No, mama, love you. That would be terrible parenting. What was it? It was corrective. If you insist on doing this, here's the rules by which you must play. Because we don't think this is beneficial to you. Do you see the difference? Paul's letter is very corrective in nature. Secondly, Paul's letter is very clarifying theologically. Think about this. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter, or Jesus said these words to his apostles. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Imagine being a New Testament Jew and Jesus looks at you and says, I'm going to build my church. And you're stepping back going, oh cool, what's that? It was a new concept to them. They knew Jesus was going to do it, but they didn't fully understand what it was going to look like. They just knew it was true. Do you know there's many things in the Gospels that we read about that are clarified in the New Testament letters? Remember when uh, Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And we read that and we're like, yes. But then you go to the book of Romans and Paul clarifies the depth of that love. He talks about big theology words like God sanctified you. He justified you. He glorifies you eventually. Those are big theology words. What's Paul doing? He's taking the truth of the Gospels and clarifying them in his letters. It's not new theology. It's clarified theology. You see, often much of... <clears throat> After Jesus' death up to the first New Testament book we had, almost 25 years had passed. Much of what they knew was passed down orally. Now it's getting written down, clarified for church history, for us now to benefit from today. So when we read about tongues in the book of Acts, we need to view it from a 30,000-foot level. And then we go to the book of 1 Corinthians, corrective in nature, and we see Paul clarifying it for believers. It's not new revelation He's saying, you just don't understand this completely, and I'm going to help you understand it. So if you insist on doing it, you do it properly. So look at 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. 
I want to give us a few things here, and I promise that we're almost done. Paul says, all right, Corinthians, you wrote me about this. You insist on practicing tongues in the gathering of your church. He said, I'm going to show you then the litmus test on which you must follow. Here's the guidelines that you must do. And here's the question I want us to ask today. Based on past experience that maybe you've had, or based on what you've seen practiced in other congregations, are they doing it biblically based on what Paul said? That's all I want you to ask. Think about this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 11, we saw it in the book of Acts, that it must be a known language. That disables completely the idea that it could be an ecstatic utterance or that it could be an angelic language. P.S., find me one place in the New Testament where angels spoke in some weird language. You're not going to find it. Paul says, I, uh, you know, if I spoke in the language of angels, yada, yada, that's hyperbole, hyperbole, that's exaggeration. He doesn't really mean that there. It's exaggeration that he's using. It's like telling your kid, hey, like uh, if all your friends were jumping on a off a bridge, would you do it too? That's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians there. Like, if I spoke in the language of angels, but I didn't have love, it's worthless. It's hyperbole that he's using with the Corinthians. So we know it must be a known language. Secondly, it must be interpreted according to 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 13. Why? Because if somebody shows up to our church gathering this morning and begins to speak in German, who in here actually speaks fluent German? Probably nobody. That means that person's speech, if it truly is from God, would not edify any of us in the church. And the purpose of a spiritual gift we see from 1 Peter 4, and also when Paul wrote about it in Romans and other places in Corinthians and throughout the New Testament, the purpose of spiritual gifts is the edification and the building up of the body. Therefore, if you begin to speak in German and somebody in here doesn't interpret it, you're not edifying the church, you're confusing us, and it's not helpful. So it must be interpreted. Second, or number three, and this ties into that, it must be for the benefit of others, not yourself. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. Sometimes you're going to hear that language used. If I just want to speak in tongues because it makes me feel closer to God. Stop. It's not for you. It's for the benefit of other people. The reason that Jesus gave you any spiritual gift is for someone else. That's why when we emphasize so much the importance on the gathered body of the church, we don't show up to church for me or for you. It's for the person you're next to. It's for the person you're going to see in the hallway. It's for the person you're going to bump into in the parking lot. Your giftedness is for them. That's so significant. Number four, it must be done in an orderly fashion. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If the whole church, imagine right now, if this side of the room all stood up and you started speaking Italian. That'd be pretty sweet, but don't do it. All right, you started speaking Italian. Then the middle section, you started speaking German. Then this section over here, we all started speaking Chinese. And everybody's just going around and going crazy. For what end? All that's going to happen is the Chinese-speaking folks over here are going to look at the Italian folks over here and go, we don't know what you're saying. That's not helpful. Paul says that's not what we do. We do it in an orderly fashion. Number five, two more. Number five, Paul says no more than three people at a time while it's being interpreted. Why? So it can be orderly. 1 Corinthians 14, 27. That also dismantles the notion that some people have a private prayer language. You can't find that in the Bible. Tongues is always meant to be done in the public gathering of the body of Christ for the edification of other people in the church gathering. Lastly, this, one's, this one just knocks everything else out of the water. I, and honestly, and I'm not being rude, okay? And I, I don't mean this to be rude, and I'm not, I, this isn't prideful. I've never seen a church follow all these rules. 
I've been in, in charismatic Pentecostal church. I have friends that are part of these, friends I love dearly, that love Jesus with so much of their soul. I've never seen them follow all the rules when it comes to this gift. But here's the most important one. It's got to be done in the presence of an unbelieving Jew. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22. Again, backed up by the book of Acts. The purpose of tongues was to show the Jewish nation that God was not reserved for just them, but was for all people. That's why you're going to see in verse 21 in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians, that prophecy from Isaiah. It's meant to be in the presence of an unbelieving Jew. So even if right now we followed all the rules and somebody over here began speaking in another language and somebody over here started interpreting, we would have to pause and say, is there any unbelieving Jews in the room right now? And if the answer was no, we'd stop. Because it's not biblical at that point. That is so significant, friends. That is so significant for us. So do you see how Paul took what was in Acts and he clarified it for us? It's not new revelation, it's clarified revelation. And so to close, I simply want us to think through this. Is what we see in churches as a whole what we see here in 1 Corinthians, and I don't think so. I think much of what we see is very chaotic, and I don't think it's in line with the Scriptures. Now, it begs the question, have they ceased? Right, we read that verse in 1 Corinthians 13 just a moment ago. I don't think we can make a definitive conclusion that they have. I'm going to lean towards they probably have, but I don't think we can make a definitive conclusion because Paul says when the perfect comes, they will cease. Theologically, you're going to see some people say that's eternity. When eternity comes, these things will be done. Some people will say when spiritual maturity comes to the church, that's when they're going to be done. There's so many interpretations of that verse. Has tongues ceased? I don't know. All I do know is this, that if we're going to practice them, if somebody's going to practice them, that has to be in line with the Scriptures. And I'm going to go ahead and lean into the conservative camp of based on the, the authority of God's Word that these are probably done. So what do we do with our brothers and sisters that we love that practice these how do we deal with this? How do we think through what they're engaging in? John MacArthur is a man I respect deeply, a pastor in California. I'm going to steal his words. He, he framed it up three ways. He said, either it has to be pagan in nature, what they're doing. Okay. Now, I would not go out on a limb and say that's what everybody's doing is they're practicing some sort of pagan ritualistic thing. I think the majority, that's not true. But I think there are some, and I'm not old enough and I've been a pastor long enough to call them out, but there are some very prominent churches in our nation that are practicing very pagan theological things that, friends, be so careful. Be so careful the music you listen to. Be so careful the preachers you listen to because much of the theology that they teach is very pagan in nature and you're going to have a hard time backing it up with the Bible. The second group he talks about is those who have a very learned behavior when it comes to the gift of tongues. Again, I've been in those contexts where they teach you how to do it. They tell you, just begin saying, saying letters and let them roll off your tongue. Just let your mind check out and let your words form. They're, they're teaching you how to do something. Listen, spiritual gifts are not something you have to teach me. It's the overflow of Jesus in me. That's how they work. You don't have to teach these things to me. I think that's where a lot of churches fall into. That's the category where it's just a learned behavior. And here's the last one, and it's the most dangerous. I think it's psychological for some people. I think it's psychological, and what I mean by that is when they speak in tongues, often in this ecstatic utterance of, of some kind, it makes them feel close to God. That's why a lot of people, I have friends that they talk about having this private prayer language, 
where they, they speak in all these syllables to God in the privacy of their own home. Why do you do that? It makes me feel close to God. Number one, that, that can't be biblical because it doesn't edify the whole church. Um, but number two, that's dangerous. Things that alter you psychologically are very dangerous in nature because it's just like a drug. You always need more. That's why often in some church context, you're going to see people like the, the, the entire service is consumed with speaking in tongues. Why? Because we're chasing this psychological high that has to be fulfilled. Be very cautious with those things. Emotional experiences only provide temporary fulfillment. That's why we place such a high emphasis on truth at this church. We need to know what the Bible says. And if my experience doesn't line up with the word of God, my experience is wrong. The Bible's correct. All right, that's a strong stance that we take here. So we end all of this and we're like, wow, that was heavy. What do we do with it? Man, I thought of this last night. It shows me the, the sufficiency of this book. The sufficiency of the scriptures. That if experience doesn't line up, this book is right. If my feelings don't line up, this book is right. At the end of the day, this book is right. And we have to make the decision as Bible-believing Christians to tell ourselves, this book is right. No matter what I've experienced, no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, no matter what I feel, this book is right. And if my experiences and feelings are different than this book, then I'm going to line them up with this book. Why? Because this book is right. The scriptures are sufficient. You see that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're so good. God, in the heaviness, would you grant us grace? God, in our past experience, our past theological understandings, Lord, whatever we may have brought to the table, God, grant us grace this morning. Lord, to wrestle with your word, knowing that the scriptures are sufficient. God, they're profitable to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us in righteousness. God, may you continue to grow us as Jesus followers, Lord, so that we fall in love with your word, but not only in love with your word, with the author of the word, and that is Jesus. God, thanks for our time together in the scriptures this morning. I pray that it has been an equipping moment for your church. It's been a growing moment for your church. And God, most of all, that it mobilizes us, God, to take Jesus everywhere we go this week. God, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.